Hello, this is Cedaring Fox, and welcome to the Word Theater Short Story Podcast. This week, we will honor a man who has been a treasured part of the Word Theater family since we began nearly 20 years ago. Philip Baker Hall, who passed from this world on June 12th, at the moment that he was ready with his mind and heart clear, surrounded by his loving family, was a constant supporter of Word Theater's mission to make a better world one story at a time. We will always miss him, but we are so pleased that he will live on immortalized through his work forever. We are sharing four of his many live performances with you, our listeners from around the world. Philip was the talented, kind, and intelligent vessel through whom these stories came to life. He activated every word, infusing them with his signature passion and gravitas. Our first story is called Young Man on Sixth Avenue, a Pushcart Prize-winning story written in 1955 by Mark Halliday. It's a timeless piece that Philip completely understood. This story manages to cover a lifetime in a couple of pages, and here it is. He was a young man in the big city. He was a young man in the biggest, the most overwhelming city. And he was not overwhelmed. For see, he strode across Fifth Avenue just before the light changed, and his head was up in the sharp New York wind, and he was thriving upon the Rock of Manhattan in 1938. His legs were long, and his legs were strong. There was no question about his legs. They were unmistakable in their length and strength. They were as bold and dependable as any American machine moving him across fifth, just in time, his brown shoes attaining the sidewalk without any faltering, his gait unaware of the notion that legs might ever want to rest. 49th Street, he walked swiftly through the haste and blare, through the chilly exclamation points of taxis and trucks and people. He was a man. In America, 38. New York, two o'clock in the afternoon, sunlight chopping down between buildings, 49th Street, and his hair was so dark, almost black, and it had a natural wave in it, recognized as a handsome feature by everyone, recognized universally, along with his dark blue eyes and his strong jaw. Women saw him, they, they all had to see him. All the young women had to perceive him reaching the quarter of 49th and 5th. All the young women had to know that he was a candidate. And he knew they knew. He knew they knew that he would get some of them. And he moved visibly tall with the tall potential of the not finite 20th century, and getting that would be his inheritance. And the young women who glanced at him on 6th Avenue, they knew that he knew. They felt that they or their sisters would have to take him into account, and they touched their scarves a little nervously. He was 25 years old, and this day in 1938 was the present. It was so obviously and totally the present, so unabashed and even garish with its presence. Beamingly, right there, right now, like Rita Hayworth, all Sixth Avenue was, in fact, at two o'clock, a thumping, bright Rita Hayworth, and the young man strode south irresistibly. If there was only one thing he knew, crossing 48th, it was that this day, or 
1939 or soon, or in the big brazen decade ahead in 1940, soon. So he walked with fistful of futures that could happen in all his pockets. And his wavy hair was dark. It was so dark. It was almost black. And he knew the right restaurant for red roast beef. Not too expensive. And in his head were some sharp ideas about uh, Dreiser and Thomas Wolfe and John O'Hara on 47th between two buildings, buildings even taller than him. There was an unexpected zone of deep shade. He paused for half a second, and he shivered for some reason. But briskly then, briskly, he strode ahead. In the restaurant on 7th Avenue, he met his friend John for a witty late lunch. Everything was, the whole, the whole meal was good. The whole lunch was good. It was right. And what they said was both hilarious and notably well-informed. <laughs> and then soon, he was taking the stairs two at a time up to an office on 6th for his interview. The powerful lady seemed to like his sincerity and the clarity of his eyes. It's a hard combination to beat. And the even more powerful man in charge sized him up and he saw the same things. And he got the job. That job lasted three years. Then came the war. Then another job. Then Judy. And then the two kids. And a better job in Baltimore. In those years. Those years. And those years. Those years. And the kids went to college with new typewriters in the blue chair with his work on his lap pad after a pleasant dinner of macaroni and sausage and salad. He dozed off. Then he was 60. <laughs> 60! Then he rode back and forth on trains. Judy became ill. Doctors offered opinions. Commas were deceptive. Judy died. But the traffic on Coleytown Road next morning still moved casually too fast. And in a minute, he was 75. And the phone rang with news that witty John of the great late lunches was dead. The house pulsed with silence. Something. Undone, what? I, the thing that would have saved, saved what? What? Uh, waking in the dark, maybe something unwritten that would have made people say, yes, that's why you matter so much. Ideas about um, uh, Wolf or uh, Dreiser or maybe something about John O'Hara. Women see past him on the street now in this pseudo-present, and he feels they are so stupid, and he walks fierce for a minute, but then... I, his shoulders settled closer to his skeleton with the truth about these women. Not especially stupid, only young. In this pseudo-present, he blinks at a glimpse of that young man on 6th Avenue. Young man as if still out there in the exclamation of 6th Avenue. That young man ready to stride across the street, but a taxi makes him step back to the curb. So... 
You'll have to wait a few seconds. Can wait. Next, we have a short story called One Quarrel by Ron Carlson. One Quarrel is an evocative love story that Philip read for us in 2010 in Venice, California. It was followed by a Q&A with the author. Here again, Philip slides into character with an unforgettable, heart-opening precision. To say a few words about that wonderful day, here is Ron Carlson. As a writer, it's not your job to explain your story and many times even understand it. Philip Baker Hall was the kind of astonishing actor that when I heard him read my story, I understood it so much more. Great actors are like that. They find rooms in a story that the writer isn't quite aware of, at least this writer. He was magnificent. He'll be missed. Though they had um, parted and now lived in different cities, he only remembered one quarrel of all the years and travels. They had been through Europe together, of course, when they were young, and she'd been sunburned in France, fond of the wine, first she'd ever liked. A thick red wine from a vineyard 20 minutes from their campground above the beach. And she'd taken off her bikini top, like everyone else, browned herself, and one day at the campground, she'd quickly pulled him into the women's shower room, where they had to be very quiet in the big shower stall, but brown and soapy, she had laughed and laughed and become known as the American woman who thought washing up was very funny. <laughs> and they had been to Tokyo, a city he remembered as a city of nights, the lights of the Ginza as they sat in the backs of taxis, knowing not to kiss, because their first cab driver had stopped and shaken a finger at them and said, not in Japan. <laughs> they said that every night at the hotels that they found along the way and along the river in Scotland. And she came into his arms, or he came into her arms. Not in Japan. They'd lost luggage, and he'd lost his wallet twice and found it again once. It was still on the roof of the cab at the taxi stand at the Gare du Nord on their second trip to Paris, a magical lump which saved that day. But it had years of staying at home, too. Three houses, each newer than the last, but not as nice or as well-made. A brick house, a block house, and then a frame house with stucco, which went to Flinders in a Midwestern hour under an unnamed tornado. But all three had been great houses, with their paintings on the walls and their bare feet padding in the kitchen. And they'd raised three children, two girls, and then Charlie. All of it intense, permanent. The infinite school days and the impossibility of seven times eight. And then the magical answer and the sudden projects for school, the poster for Magellan and the maps. And then all the lessons cello and horseback riding and the injuries, no broken bones. But Dora burned at camp and the scar on her forearm and Eleanor, two years as a spacey teenager, riding her bike into the back of a parked car, the dental work, and then the acrid season where the boyfriend Matt or cat or rat 
and his tattoos. And the night she showed them her tattoo, the Chinese characters, and they sat quietly looking at her thigh, neither asking. And finally, their daughter Ellie, looking up from the blue mark on her leg and saying, well, dears, it will then be always a mystery until the next person sees it. And when he does, there's going to be a party. She got on her hands and knees on the couch, knowing that he and his wife could not even move. And she crawled over and kissed them each. And then, two years later, she was right about the party, as it accompanied her entire wedding. And it was Wesley, the groom, who told them that she'd told him about Rat, and that he had now seen the tattoo all right. And he smiled and said, it's the character for patience. And Ellie says she chose it for you too. And then, the two of them walking around the last house, the only one that was ever empty late at night, carrying half a glass of wine, listening, putting pans away and magazines and collecting the dropped towels and being able to hear the children sleeping. Three and two and one. And then Charlie at college and his internship in Richmond. <laughs> Their baby is a speechwriter and still with the same half glass of wine. They circled the house looking for a shirt draped over a chair, crossing by each other with the ache of the empty house in their hearts, asking, he could not remember a quarrel from any of it. Later, living alone, coasting on the memories that substituted for sleep, he'd work his way back through the seasons of their life, and he knew there was not a time that someone stood angrily and left the table or slammed the door or any of it. He remembered tears in the car, but what were they ever about? Some night driving around the lake, coming home from a party, and him crying, or her, the reason long lost. He remembered vividly her saying his name sharply as he parked the car one wheel over the curb when they'd race back after their one tornado. But then, as they stood on the littered lawn and looked at most of their house, torn open like junk mail, as if the brown wind had also been looking unsuccessfully for their children... Their hands flew out separately like ridiculous magnet toys and found each other. There were shingles driven into the walls of the upstairs hallway, which was now open to the world like something intended. The rose vine wallpaper finally right in the cloudy open air of day. The, the quarrel he remembered. Ancient. But he saw it as clearly as anything he'd known in the last week of his life now. It was the first year they'd begun to see each other. They were in college and had met in a small honors history class in which you could smoke. It was so long ago. And a girl in the class always smoked her Salem's and ashed into a tin Band-Aid box, which she had painted gold, and it was her performance of smoking that they both remembered as much as their project. Uh, an analysis of the New Deal and the political fallout from the Civilian Conservation Corps and how it became a fundamental step away from the farms, from agricultural America. The girl in her class always lit a cigarette before she spoke, and she could handle and maneuver the cigarette 
and pointed and then looked down and tapped the ash during her remarks. And they both laughed about how unfair it was for her to have this advantage. And his wife said she was going to win that battle and open her fist while defending the Democrats and reveal a pair of her underpants. <laughs> Later in class, she had done it. And he saw it coming and still gasped until he saw it was a lace handkerchief with which she wiped the corner of her mouth and then smiled at him gloriously, his shocked open eyes. And that was actually the last beat in their terrific courtship. And it led them to her bed that night after her roommate had gone up to campus for the Underground Film Society, which was showing Woman in the Dunes. <laughs> so uh, they were involved. And everything good in his life doubled in a way that he knew was permanent. His schoolwork and his ability to leave her apartment at 11 or 12 at night and kick through the comically leaf-strewn streets like a movie set that fall up to the campus and across the soccer fields to the dorms in the cold wind. And by the time he pushed through the oak door of his room, he knew what he would say in his paper about the poet Robert Browning or the poet Percy Shelley. And he sat at his old manual typewriter close enough to the window to hear the ghost of the fall wind carrying the legions of leaves down from the mountain canyons and gathering them against the brittle fences of the residence hall tennis courts. And he typed the nine-page paper through, top to bottom, and then at 4 a.m., he cruised the sleeping corridors of the dorm and finally out into the dark morning, claiming the world in long strides, the way love had claimed him. It was the middle of December when they quarreled. Finals were coming up, and he was over his head in his studies, at least it felt that way. He was relentless with his classwork and worried it all to the last minute, preoccupied so that when he had a paper due, his eyes were always going to it in his head, and he finished only half of the things that he had started to say, wired with attention and fatigue, less sleep every night, and always ready for the demanding sessions of the class days. There had been an intense surprise that Monday morning when he had walked down to her apartment in an old house in the avenues, the student district, every window burning a light into the early hours. The morning sky had stalled and gone glassy, and it had started to snow, tiny dots, as he jaywalked under the skeletal trees, and it was flakes by the time he got to her door. Their custom was to walk back up to Elizabeth Street and have a coffee and a hot cider at the pantry, a student cafe, which had beaten copper tables in the six booths. The cider came with a stick of cinnamon, and the smell of the cider and the cinnamon always meant warm discussion to the man. All his life, there would never be so much cinnamon as that year. <laughs> but at her house, a huge three-story ruin cut into five apartments, she'd smiled, pulled him inside, and he was astonished to find her in her flannel nightgown. The warmth, a shock, and she pulled his coat from him, forced his red-cold face into her neck, whispering her roommate was gone to a special language lab, and they had hours. <laughs> he broke with joy and welcome, and they tunneled into the single bed under the heavy coverlet he had learned to love, because he had known the pattern, memorized the ranks of yellow flowers and the files of waving blue lines for a year before he'd even sat on the thing, and then later still kissed her, 
sitting on the bed, and then taking the stolen hours together. The quilt seemed a co-conspirator to him, and bare-legged, against her smoothness, which he never in all of his life could describe, and there were times he tried. The arch of her leg under his hand, and then suddenly that quick, cold morning was warm and home. And then soundly home, floating, heavy. There was a way to lie in the bed and look up through the old pane windows as the snow thickened and slid silently against the glass like some grand planetary movement that gave him holding her nothing but vertigo, or was she the vertigo, or his life, so rich that season that every time he started to smile, tears rose in the alcoves of his eyes. They had never had such time together, and every time he began to turn or move. She put her palm against his cheek and whispered, slow, slow. And you, you. And so his heart seemed to unfold further and further into the pearly morning light of her apartment. He broke there. And then They rolled slowly in the tender furnace of her bed as the world gave itself to snow all morning long. Later they woke, and she took his hand and lifted it until only their hands were outside of the covers, like two bare explorers on the white pillow, and they could feel the cold of the room, and they didn't speak, but bumped heads softly, and he could feel her smiling. They clasped hands and began to whisper. She asked him what his plans were for the day. And his plans, which had been headlines two hours before, were now lost in the back pages of Section 2 or 3. But he told her he had to finish his paper for Dr. Wismer, the honors seminar, which had been like a pressure cooker all term, his first great college course, which was asking all of him each week. And then later today, he had to help his dorm floor erect their Christmas decorations for the contest. They were putting two big... Five-point stars on the roof made from long cardboard tubes from spools of carpet. Somebody's uncle worked for a carpet company, and his dorm had ten. They were going to attach them with coat hangers and run Christmas lights, the plan hatched from the materials. How are you going to get on the roof? Well, that's not a problem, he told her, whispering in the dark. It wasn't a problem. He lived with a dozen guys, and they were all manic daredevils. They were four stunts every week, climbing out the third-story window with nothing but an attitude and maybe a few beers, was perfect. Kenny Melson will go up, he said. He's been up there before. He led our balloon fight from up there. She said, he's the blonde kid with the short haircut? Right, he said, and he felt her clench suddenly against him as they heard the lock jostle and the panel door open. Then the roommate, Jenny, said, oh, and laughed. I said, oh, uh, Veronica, one of your hands definitely needs lotion. And yes, please excuse me. I will go and have some more coffee at the pantry, and we'll not be back for one complete hour. And the door registered again, and this time it closed. He squeezed her hand then, and she held on. And the embrace ran down their arms until again they were lost. His hip and this hip, and whose? He awoke so deep in her bed that he didn't know where he was. 
in the deep gray light was no light. He felt the weight of the semester in his neck. The soft bed had taken him. He sat up, pulled his clothes on, and walked in the late day, dark into the lighted kitchen, where Jenny looked up from a cup of tea in her notebooks and said, Well, hello there. <clears throat> she said to send you to the reading room when you appeared. It is you, yes. He held up his hand and smiled, saying, uh, Thank you, and forgive me in not speaking, because he had no grip on how he felt having lost four hours or five. The first hours he'd collapsed into all fall. He was the last one up every night in his dorm, his papers on the table in the common room, and he was the first one up, so his work lay undisturbed in the morning, and now it was snowing, still and dark, and he felt the rush of the day. He would not have time to finish his paper for honors, and Dr. Wisner was the one professor who mattered to him, and he would not have time to get up to his dorm and help with the decorations. He ached to go up there and kick back with those characters and crack a few beers on a Sunday night and drill the cardboard tubes and hand them out the window to Melson. It felt late now, and it was late. Outside, the glowing twilight brimmed and tipped into night, rich with snow still falling, great echelons of heavy snow falling silently in the silent town with the earnestness of labor, solemn, no end in sight. He walked up through the avenues, the snow to his knees. He needed to hurry, but he could not hurry in the snow, which had shut the city down. There were no cars, and so he walked in the center of the street and through the intersections where the snow teemed in colored clouds as the traffic lights changed, red, green, yellow, red again. The old library came into view like a great ship in a movie, the dim yellow dots growing into the magnificent paned windows of the massive reading room. He stood for a minute in front of the old building, which he loved so much, and he thought with his legs wet and his breath mingling with the falling snow. This is my life. It would be a lifelong habit of his to step out and call the question. And now he said aloud, you're an undergraduate in college. Lifted his face, closed his eyes, and he felt the snow's tiny burn on his eyelids. She was upstairs in the grand room at one of the 20 gigantic oak tables, each too wide to pass a book across. The snow melted in his hair and he could feel his eyes burning. There were only three people in the bright room, a room they claimed as their own in the early fall, and they tried to double their luck all semester by being at their table when the lights went on, the huge brass sconces lighting the paneled ceiling as if for drama. Now he crossed the room, and it was the strangest thing. He, he knew they would argue something on him. It was wrong, and he knew it. He, he wanted to fight. She got up to hug him. But he went around and sat across from her in the carved wooden library chair, too far to whisper, and he opened his valise without looking at her, knowing she thought he was acting, knowing that she was smiling at this little theatrical display. Finally, she waved, and he had to look, and she said, Hello, you dear sleepy. And he did the cruelest thing he could remember. He shushed her and opened his notebook. There were two people at a table which could seat 20. He remembered a scarf, red and tan, still around her neck, and her rosy face in the golden library light, and the sound of her wooden chair as she stood 
and came around the table in a quick comic walk, carrying her book against her chest. And she sat next to him then, and she put her face against his neck and said, I still smell like you. And he said to her louder than a whisper, No, you don't. And the next thing she did was turn square to face him, her hands on both his elbows, while he averted his eyes to the two tear stacks of books lining the walls, the rolling rail ladder at each corner. So many books, it always made him ache. Each one a place he wanted to go. She said, are you okay? His face was a cloud, and he said, I, I, I'm, I'm just fine. I, I've got to get this paper done for, for Wisner. I lost the day. You will, she said. You'll get it. Work for a while. We'll take a break. When they auctioned the elephants, it was their favorite joke about the room, something he'd said the first evening they'd met there, and they sat whispering as the yellow light ran gold along the woodwork in the vaulted space, and he had said, what a golden cavern. And she said, it doesn't feel like a cavern, a cave. It feels like a room. And he'd finished the sentence, where they will soon auction the elephants. She laughed and turned, kissed him quickly, and said, I want one. Please bid on the smallest elephant. And he remembered the moment as well as any in his life from his boyhood or later with his own children and now their children. And it was that moment when he looked in her face, he saw her eyes and the gladness there, the truth and the gladness. And he knew He knew that he had been found. But the night of the snowstorm in the old library, he said, there are no elephants. This is when he felt himself stand up. He couldn't stop himself. He was shuffling his notebook into his case, and his body jerked and stood, and he felt himself turn and take the first step, and he could not stop. He walked toward the arched doors for the lobby stairway, and he knew in those moments that he was wrong. And there was no help for it. It was a feeling that bled through his body. And he knew it under his ribs and in his legs, which had been all morning and most of the day in her bed. She called in the vast reading room then. There are elephants. You know there are elephants. Her voice was so loud that the room was changed. And then he was down the marble steps and pushing the great tall doors open. And he was then out into the ongoing blizzard, which had swallowed the campus. The world engulfed that way should have been a solace, but it was not. And he pushed through the deep snow up across the main quadrangle and past the humanities hall, the only person on the planet, all wet in the unrelenting snow, the storm itself seeming like work to him, the night dragging down the heavy, joyless multitudes. And he stumbled once, crossing the upper campus road, and was all fours in the snow for a breath, and then two. And his collar smelled like her shampoo, and he loved the smell. And I heard him. There was a way that she lay across him, and her hair covered his face. With his wrists red and coated with plates of snow, clinging to his flimsy fall jacket, he kicked across the golf course, ignoring the path which he had lost anyway. The dorm was quiet and the entry radiators rumbled and hissed. And he stood for a moment and tried to pull the doors closed, but they wouldn't meet. They were never closed. And the floor was wet where he tried to shake off his coat and brush the snow from his hair. 
in the upstairs lounge, three guys were drinking beer in the common room and watching Melson, who was lying on the floor. He had a beer in his hand, too. Nobody spoke as he came in, and he peeled off his jacket, put down his valise, and looked from face to face. Thought you had a paper due, one of the guys said. It was his best friend in the dorm, a kid from Illinois, who was majoring in meteorology. I did. He said, I do. But I thought I'd come up and help with the decorations. We're done, the boy told him. No decorations. Melson now spoke. I fell off the roof. He lifted his head and drank from the can of beer. He did that, one of the guys said. He was fabulous. <laughs> We're done, Nelson said. Merry Christmas. Are you hurt? Yeah, it hurt. <laughs> Too much snow, the young weatherman said. He was standing on the sill right there. You fell three stories? Merry Christmas, Captain, Nelson said. No more roof for this guy. You going to the doctor, he said. Not right away, one of the boys said. He walked up here an hour ago. His color's good. And now he felt the cold, his, his back and his wet legs. There was still snow crusted in his hair and his pant legs. And so he stood and said, I'm sorry, Melson. Merry Christmas. I'll see you later. Remembering the scene, he was struck by that life. The dormitory was a series of aftermath tableaus. There was always somebody freshly on the floor, sleeping, smoking, stoned, crying, offering a lecture. Years of it. These guys had elected him representative. His room was dark but warm, and he already felt the ache in his shoulders and the chill in his legs and the headache. He tapped into the hundred hours of lost sleep at her house, and now they were coming to claim him until he was even. He hoped it wasn't the flu, but it could be the flu. In the bed, he began to roast and went into the deep drift of sleep. In the glowing night, he was awakened by her fingers on his forearms, and she pulled him up and peeled his soaking sweatshirt off his chest and dried him with one of his rough towels and then guided his arms into a new T-shirt. She handed him a glass of water, which he drank half of, and he heard her set it on his desk. She put the towel underneath him and laid him down again. What's going on? He said. No girls in the dorm, she said. You'll get this. He said, you'll get sick. No, she said, you can't give it to me. We're in love. She lay on the covers, pinning him in, her face against the side of his. He nudged his nose into her hair. Prell, she said, you smell like Prell. <laughs> you do, he said. His forehead was hot, and the sweet smell was dry and delicious and led the way again to sleep. At his son's house in Vestheta, he showered in the guest room and found the green tube of Prell and lathered immediately. But not, it hurt the man for it guarded the one quarrel of all the years that he could remember. Next up, we have Pain by Joyce Carol Oates. This very short story was performed when Joyce came to Word Theatre in Los Angeles back in 2013. 
Even before listening to this recording, I remembered Philip's performance as clearly as if it took place yesterday. His performances were always that powerful. In fact, I saw him take on the role of Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman in 1989 at the Los Angeles Theater Center, and it has been indelibly seared into my memory ever since. Philip was brilliant, simply brilliant. Last year, we recorded Philip talking about this story, which we launched on the podcast, along with three other gems by Joyce Carol Oates. And here is what Philip had to say. Now, this author dives deep into the river of life. She's able to get down to the cellular level of what her characters are going through. Now, this story is just three pages. But the journey she takes you on, it's... Uh, it is uncomfortable, but it's authentic, and it's true, and it's amazing. So, take a deep breath, because here we go. When you are in pain, the pain is in you, for the pain is you. When you are in pain, the pain is in you. For the pain fits fully, like a hand thrust into a pliant glove. When you're in pain, the pain is you, and no one remains. When you are in pain, you cannot be apprehensive of the future or regretful of the past. For the pain is all present tense, and the pain is you when you are in pain. When you're in pain, the pain is you. You have no need to name the pain or consider its causes, nor do you need to speak of future humiliations or hopes of happiness, for the pain is you, and you are utterly absorbed. When you're in pain, you may be childish in weeping or stoic in character, but you need not fear injury, malaise, long, humid August days, that ravel out to nothing, the despoiling of your name. When you're in pain, you cannot be snubbed or unfairly judged, since there is no one except the pain when you're in pain, and the pain is you. When you're not in immediate pain, your body is alert and tense as a network of wires strung tight, awaiting the return of pain. For the pain will return. For the pain is you. Such questions as, uh, will it flash, sting, pulse, pry, stab, hammer, throb, ripple, pierce, flood, Inevitable questions when you are not in pain, for you must anticipate pain, for it has proven itself worthy. When you are not in pain, you are obliged to inhabit certain human postures as um, <coughs> pride, courage, calm, lucidity, Olympian detachment, patience, resiliency, great sense of humor, sweetness, charm, dignity, Noblesse oblige, innate good sense, common sense, rationality, 
optimism, and the rest <laughs> when you're not in pain. When you are not in pain, you may be brave or cowardly as you wish, for the pain awaits its terrible return and passes no judgment. When you are not in pain, you may wallow in self-pity, as they say, or you may um, deny, as they say, by absorbing yourself in other subjects, for pain offers no opinion, presents no bias. When you are not in pain, you may hide your ghastly ravaged face behind your hands or beg that all mirrors be taken from your sight or would you wish all mirrors everywhere smashed? You may whisper gentle reasonable requests that issue forth as screams. You may scream until your vocal cords are raw but issue no sound. You may ring the tiny golden bells at your bedside shyly or furiously as you wish. You may write desperate little notes to those whom you once loved and betrayed and forgot. You may contemplate, as they say, suicide. You may press your fevered face against the window pane, and when no one sees, you may despoil the exquisite frost filigrees with your vile, scum-coated tongue for the pain is merely absent and awaits its return. When you are in pain, the pain is in you. And the space you inhabit, which is the room or the world, or all you recall of either. When you're in pain, you have nothing to fear of vanity or sin or over-subtlety or hyperesthesia or hypocrisy. When you are in pain, and the pain is in you, you are without language, and no one can pursue you into that country, for you are the pain, and no one remains, and even the curvature of the earth, and the slow dreamlike floating fall of the moon through the sky, and the myriad constellations of the great sky have disappeared. When you are in pain, the mirror's lead backing is dissolved so, for once, you must gaze into nothing. When you are in pain and the pain is in you, a sudden sweetness floods your veins, which is piercing sunshine on frost or dizzying arabesques in that wallpaper beside your head. When you are in pain, and the pain is in you, and the pain is you, you can no more resist than a diver can resist gravity once he is falling through the air. For there is no one to resist when you are in pain, and the pain is in you, and the pain is you. When the pain is.
For our last offering today, we have a beautiful story by Kevin Brockmeyer that Philip performed when Kevin's collection of stories was first published. We shared this recording on the podcast several months ago, and for those of you who've never heard it, and for those of you who would like to hear it again, here's the voice of the author saying a few words. Hello, this is Kevin Brockmeyer, the author of Small Degrees. Small Degrees is a story from my first collection, Things That Fall From the Sky. I am lastingly grateful to Word for shining a spotlight on the story, and to Philip Baker Hall for presenting it with such consummate talent and sympathy. Mr. Hall does not read without emphasis, but the emphasis he provides is quiet and subtle and makes it plain that he understands the way literature does its speaking and trusts it. The skill with which he delivers the story does, I think, seem one imagination to another. I hope you appreciate his presentation as much as I do. As a small boy, he was always sitting cross-legged in the grass, gazing for long hours at this thing or another, an igloo shape of water in the soil or the brown joints of a stick insect. A dreamer, his parents said, and they flopped about in their beds at night where they knew that this would never do. One winter month, the whiteness of a blizzard climbed to the second pane of their front window, bottling the world away until spring. He began to study the family books in the glow of the fire. A scholar, said his father, nodding proudly and envisioning a desk and leather armchair at the academy, he went to find his wife. A hopeful few hours later, the boy's mother was dusting in the living room. She asked him a question. What are you reading now, dear? And he surprised her by answering, the letter N. <laughs> it was then that she noticed him holding his book to the light, staring with perfect emptiness at the blank side of each page. She came to an unpleasant realization. That night, she told his father what she had seen. A fool, she concluded, and his father damply concurred. A fool! So when the first adult hairs began to sprout on his chin, they sent him into the city, apprenticing him to the metal founder. A man with a trade, they thought, Fool though he may be, was better off than one without. But the boy was not as simple as he seemed. He learned his craft quickly, casting foundry type for printers, raising and reversing each metal wood and letter. He had seen such things before in shadow, and he knew their faces and how to distinguish them. He spent his youth and manhood and middle age, watching the alphabet roll between paper and plate. Sometimes the individual characters became lost, disappearing into swiftness like the leaves of a pinwheel. But occasionally in the turbulence, they seemed to distill to a center, boiling apart until he saw the essential glowing wire of their shapes. He met a woman one winter, and he married her and fathered children, and in time those children grew up, and in time they went away. 
He worked each day in the orange heat of the foundry and the drumbeat of the presses, walked by the river each evening with his wife, undressed each nightfall, extinguished the lantern, slept by her side, and in this way grew old. A day came when the type founder was no longer able to cast without pain the copper and the lead and the antimony of his trade, nor could he walk so easily between the foundry and the printing house. Those hands, which all his life had been as springy as grasshoppers, now trembled after only a few hours' work. The back that had supported him through the many liftings of his children now knew thistles of pain when he rose from a chair. His knees suffered in the cold and sometimes in the flawless blue days of summer. At least his eyes had never failed him. They were the same eyes that had blinked him awake as a boy. He could measure a stamp to 0.918 inches, number the birds in a V-skein of geese, read a letter or a book without tilting his head, so that when his body began to unmake itself, he gave himself over to his vision. Now these were the days of Edmund and Robert Clare Mitchell, deans of the Royal School of Type Design, whose spacious Roman typeface inspired, they claimed, by the memory of a shared childhood lover, decorated paper books and newspapers, and bore the name Justina, and the names of Francesco Cori, who developed his influential plain New England functional design after a 12-year scientific study of the blinks and eye movements of the proletarian reader. And of Abraham Neeson, the inscription sign cutter, whose rich, graceful script carried the dips and serifs of immigrant market signs. The type founder had been witness to the designs of these men. He himself had cast the plates from which their work was printed. When the first of the Clare Mitchell brothers passed away at the turn of the decade, he had attended the memorial service, where a muffled drum played and a state dignitary spoke in eulogy. He gave to our people, said the dignitary, a system of letters as sturdy and balanced as their own dreams. The words he made were the words of our shared national dialogue, and his stars were the stars of our flag. We mourn the loss of a great man. The type founder watched the letters of which the dignitary spoke, opening and closing on leaflets, undulating on banners, reposing on marble above the new graves, and he felt, for the first time, the wish to design a face of his own. On a day soon after, he pushed his desk into the light of the east end of his living room. He placed a chisel and a brush there, some ink, some lead, and his carving wood and drawing paper. Seven years later, on the morning he retired from the foundry, he took a seat before these tools, and he began to work. He wanted to design a typeface that would recall his hours of childhood watching. M's and N's and commas 
that read as fluidly as the swaying of long grass in the wind. B's and D's, P's and Q's, like lampposts reflected in a pool of water. He was willing to work gradually, assembling and re-examining each stroke of each character, the hairline of a V, or the wedded bowls of a lowercase g, over a period of several days. This may seem a form of calculation, but it was in truth something closer to love, which is to say the reverse of calculation. He was trying to render his heart into letters and signs, and he was a man who discovered his heart only by small degrees. Sometimes on his way past his desk, his wife would lean carelessly toward him or draw a gray hair from his shoulder. Working hard, dear? She would ask. Uh, it's coming, he would say. She, for her part, grew lonely during these hours, becoming quiet and inward. And she wondered why he did not notice. All her life, the type founder's wife had risen from bed with the calling of the summer birds or the snapping of the winter ice to dust and whisk and scrub the house. On Tuesdays, she beat the carpets, and on Fridays, she did the laundry. Then, when her children were still children, she spent her afternoons pottering and wandering about with them, reading to them from a storybook, or walking them to the park with the large blue-brown climbing stone. When they moved on to school, and then their own adult families, she had less to fill her time. The high hours of the day became formless and bewildering. By one or two o'clock, she would have finished the cleaning. The air would be sweet, the rooms would be still and empty, and she would have nothing to do. Certain people are skilled in such forms of aloneness. They can take some forlorn thing from inside themselves and shape it into a ring or a bird or a coin, but she was not one of them. She passed each free afternoon, stirring the fire, pacing the hallway. The little mistakes of her past came to her again and again, and she relived them and shook them from her head. Sometimes she allowed herself to drop into bed for a time and simply lie there breathing. Sometimes she felt in her gut a strange sense of impermanence. She waited for evening and the return of her husband, the clunk of his footsteps on the cobblestone walkway, and she waited for the time when he might spend his days at home. And now that time had come, and with it had come this new seclusion. He worked some days until his lantern was the brightest thing in the window, and still she paced the hallway, and still she lay sighing on her blanket. One night she came to a decision. Some short time after she'd withdrawn to their bed, she listened to the sound of him at the wash basin, rinsing his face, scrubbing at his ink-dark fingers. He whipped the water from his hands, then he undressed, dimmed the light. She felt him sitting on the edge of their small mattress. How far along are you, she asked. I thought you were asleep, he said. 
He turned back and leaned against the pillows. Today I worked on the ampersand. It's difficult. It's hard to clarify. I could just as well not be here, I think. It would make no difference, she said. It's like trying to tie a, an elegant knot, he said. What? What did you say? Oh, you know that's not true, dear. What she said next, she said calmly and without reservation. She did not raise her voice from a whisper, and she did not shift from her side. Sometimes I try to talk to you when you're working. I need to hear another voice. And when you twist your head to look at me, or when you wave me away for a time with your finger, I can see it's as if I've been vanished into some other moment. You think that people are nothing but time, she said. You think, I'm nothing but time. I'm not time. I'm something else. What was he to say to such a thing? If he was this sort of person, he had never recognized it. And he wasn't sure that he even knew what it would mean to recognize it. As he tried to puzzle it through, he heard her breathing deepen. A cricket sounded at the window in the house. And all the spaces seemed to spread with an electrostatic silence. I don't know, he said. Perhaps you're right. And when she didn't reply, he closed his eyes and he gathered the blanket to his shoulders. He was soon asleep. The next morning, there was an answer waiting for him on his desk, written in his wife's hand. I love you. It read, but the word love had been crossed out and replaced with the word miss, which had been crossed out and replaced with an empty space, as though his wife had given up on the message altogether. He looked for her in the kitchen, in the pantry, in the bedroom, though he had just come from there. He stood on the front walk, watched his neighbors coming and going, but she was not among them. He even tapped on the trapdoor of the attic with a broomstick, querying her name with a brief little note of embarrassment in his voice. When it became clear that he was alone in the house, and because the day was supposed to begin in this way, he lit the stove, drew the curtains, and prepared a breakfast of eggs and toast. He completed the stem of a K that morning and busied himself that afternoon with the initial stroke of a W. All day long, he listened for the sound of her shoes in the hallway, their change from pad to click at the edge of the carpet and the floor. He listened for the snap of wood as she spurred the fire and the creak of the pantry door on its hinges and the thousand peripheral noises that told him he was home and she was home. It was not until the sun fell that he realized that she had left him. The type founder had kept house only rarely in his life. And then, just for the few short days, it took his wife to mend from a sickness or return from a visit to the children's. And the orderliness that he had known for years on end seemed to give way over succeeding weeks to a slow confusion of dirt. 
the stove filled with heaps of white ash and dust collected at the saddles of doorways, a gray-green discoloration on the bedroom window, still fattened from a dot to a blotch to a bell-shaped stain. When he walked across the carpet in the sunlight, he could see transparent cloudlets erupting from beneath his feet. And when the temperature slipped in the evening, he heard popping and groaning noises inside the walls. It was as if the house, the basic matter of his house, the board and the wall and the tile and the stone was separating joint from joint. The process seemed beyond his control. He fell to his work. As he leaned over his desk each day, lead or brush in hand, his head would fill with scenes that were charged with the vibrancy of memory. Sometimes he simply watched those scenes, allowing them to sharpen and dim or mist away into other memories. But often a particular image would grow so rich in detail that he could not help but moisten his brush, spread before himself a few leaves of paper, compelled to represent it. He began each picture with a blob of black ink and pursued its strokes and bends to the corner of the page. The drawings he made were not very good, and he knew this, but occasionally he would find in them some small piece of a letter that would make all his efforts worthwhile. He discovered in a sketch of a scrambled pollywog tail the capital Q. He found the crook of a J in the upturned beak of a sparrow and a question mark twist in the shadow of a door knocker. He saw these things suddenly, with a start in his breath, like the lashing of a whip, and he struggled to perfect them with his brush and his hands. He fell asleep, sitting at his desk, awakening in the morning from dreams of stone tools and cave art, of dyes made from blackberries and paintbrushes chewed from the fiber of twigs. His fingers tightened into a fist, and he massaged them with mint oil. His face became feverish, and he covered it with a wet cloth. When the elements of a letter had all taken shape, he drew a final copy of it on a sheet of china clay paper. He carved it, reversing the structure into the end grain of a hardwood block, and then he set this block in a case of shallow drawers, ready to be pressed into molds at the foundry, to be cast into type of a more durable sort. Sometimes when the letters lay hidden and he had to search his memory, a vision would come to him of the bruise-colored stain at his bedroom window. It was an image like a snare, holding his thoughts close and tight. And to see his way past it was like the tussling of an animal. It was a sky-blue spring morning when the type founder carved the finishing stroke of his final letter, a capital I. He blew the shavings of wood from his desk, and he watched them float into the air. Then he went to wash his hands in the basin. When he came back, the line of the sun had moved from the edge of his desk to the carpet, casting his type case in a haze of black shadow. He repositioned the case in the light against a wall, and he stepped back to take a look. Its cells were filled, its hinges glinting. Capital A through capital Z, little a through little z in Roman and Italic, all the marks of punctuation and all the marks of reference. Every character was 
complete, filed neatly in a drawer. He drew a satisfied breath, feeling a new heart and a flourish of wedding confetti. That afternoon, he thought he would button himself into his vest and his jacket, fasten the clasps of his typecase, and carry it to the foundry. It wouldn't take long to produce a plaster mold and afterwards to cast his work in lead and in antimony. He might walk home as early as nightfall, his arms heavy with metal type. Then he would prepare a stew for himself with meat from the butcher, greens from the grocer, and he would hold the letters in his hand as he ate, testing the heft of them one by one, their satisfying coolness and the fineness of their grooves. All these words went rolling through him. The type founder followed the slant of the sun across the storage case. And though it took him a moment, he noticed something there that brought his thinking to a halt. The light moving over the rows of type had pulled at the darkness and glare of the letters. Certain hollows had grown deeper. Certain angles had become sharper. Certain flags and descenders now shone as white as day. The image they formed in their turn of light and shadow became clearer as he squinted away the details. It was the face of a woman, her head cast slightly to one side. A strand of hair fell on her cheek, and she was staring as if into a great distance. It was like the shape of a cloud in an oncoming rainstorm, both distinct and illusory, and he recognized it was nothing more than a product of his dreaming vision. All the same, he would have watched it all evening. But evening came, and a short time later, a flock of birds disrupted the sunlight. The image rippled in their passing and then vanished from his sight. When he left his house that afternoon, he thought that he was setting out for the foundry. His jacket and vest were buttoned close. His typecase was swinging in his hands. But at the corner by the large blue-brown climbing stone, where the road into town met the road to the river, his feet remembered a different path. He found himself standing alongside the water, first beneath a walnut tree, and then on the bank where he used to walk with his wife. A couple of children were marking the soil with long sticks, and an old man nearby stooped to inspect the cuff of his pants. A butterfly floated along the shoreline with its otherworldly wings. It was only when the type founder saw a mother lifting her baby from a carriage, heard her pat the space between his shoulders with a hush and a there, there, that he realized his mistake. It has something to do with aspiration and neglect and the river that was flowing past him and the choice to walk there unaccompanied. And he felt his own foolishness rise up inside him and send a frost through his body. Then sick with the weight of his thoughts, he shaped that foolishness into a wish, cupped his hands, 
for a moment and sailed it into the water like a stone. Who's to say that such gestures are without consequence, that our hopes and petitions can have no influence in the world? The type founder knew, as if it were the clearest of his memories, what he would see when he got home, and he opened the front door. He set his type case against the tree, it was finished now, and he no longer needed it, and he started up the riverbank, and then thinking better of it, he turned back, and he gave the case to the woman who was coddling her baby. Alphabet blocks, he explained, for the child. He made his way along the cobbles as swiftly as he could and arrived at his porch with the sting of the walk still burning in his lungs. His wife was in the living room, her back to him, running her fingers through a line of dirt at the window. It was just as he had wished it to be, just as he had seen it. He opened his mouth to speak and his throat made a rustling noise. Sometimes, he began, and she turned to look at him from the window. He stood in the open doorway, and a small wind slipped around him. Sometimes we have the wrong dreams, he was going to say. I'm sorry, he was going to say. But his wife gave a little smile, a freshet of red in her cheeks, and rubbed the dirt from her hands with her blouse. I know, she said, nodding, I know. She gestured round the room where currents of dust were swirling in the spring air. We've got some work to do here, don't we? She asked. And the look on her face was a sign that welcomed him home. Everyone at Word Theatre hopes you've enjoyed hearing a few of the treasures from the Word Theatre archive featuring performances by Philip Baker Hall. We hope you'll share this with your friends and become a supporting member of Word Theatre, like Philip and his wife Holly have been, so we can continue to bring you wonderful short stories by the world's finest authors. Special thanks to Jonathan Sachs for composing our theme music, and thank you to our podcast editor, Jason Lee. Thank you to all of the writers and to Holly, Philip's wife, for all her continuing support. To our friend Philip Baker Hall, a giant of a human being and a phenomenal actor, we love you and we will never forget you. This is Cedaring Fox in Los Angeles, signing off. Thank you.